Good morning. Today's Bible reading comes from, there's two passages. Uh, the first comes from John 20, 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The second passage is from Matthew 22, 36 to 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You may be seated. All right, as you're seated, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is true. Your word is effective. Your word is alive and transforms us as we take it in. And by your spirit, you use it to transform our lives. And so we pray all of that for today, Lord. As we sit in these texts and others, Lord, we ask you that you would cause us to just be motivated within, stirring our affections within, that we'd live lives that would glorify you. That's, that's what we want in our lives. We want you to be seen as glorious as you truly are. And uh, we ask you that you would help us as we endeavor to work to that end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, earlier this year, Allison and I had the opportunity to go on a vacation that we've been looking forward to going on for the entirety of the 15 years that we've been married. We've been thinking about this and planning for this. And so we cashed in almost all, all of our aeroplan points and um, bought, a flight to, bought flights to Australia, found a direct flight from Vancouver to Brisbane, and we flew over there. And uh, we got to go and see some of the places that I visited prior to coming to Christ that were very influential in my life. And we got to go there together and see that and just celebrate 15 years of marriage and uh, what a joy it is to be with one another. She'd always wanted to go there. And so I found this little quiet beach town where things are really cheap. And I booked an Airbnb apartment there. And uh, we get to the quiet little sleepy beach town on the east coast of Australia. We check into this place. And as we're going in, they say, oh, here's some free vouchers for the surf club down the street. And because we love free things, we said, thank you. And we took our free vouchers and we walked down the street a couple days later and uh, we went into the surf club, going in for the opportunity to redeem something for free. Just very thankful and stirring our affections for Jesus because we like that. Go inside. There's a security desk, but this is not the restaurant we were thinking it would be. We walk up to the security desk, and, and the, the attendant there who's doing security says, Hi, where are you from? And we said, Well, we're from Canada. Oh, okay, then that's, that's good. Uh, could I see some identification, please? And I thought, I, I just have a voucher. I just, wanna, <laughs> I just want something for free. And, uh, and so we gave our identification, and they actually took copies of our identification while we were filling out all of the information that we had to fill out on this digital form on a tablet. We had to write all of our info in. We had to input our passport numbers. We had to sign the thing. And this is all at the security desk at the front door of the surf club. I thought, man, this is a lot of hoops to jump through, but we do like free stuff. And so we jumped through the hoops, and, and it turns out that the surf club is a private members-only club. It's a private members-only club, and the only way that you can actually get in as a visitor if you're, is if you're not from there. You qualify to get in for your one free pass. And so we pass the security desk, and we start walking down this long corridor, big walls, and, and kind of a high ceiling like this in this room. And down the corridors along the wall, there's photos, and, and very nicely put there, all in frames. And there's these photos of the glories of the past, of the surf club. And I started to realize the photos are all pictures and, and old historical photos of men in rowboats. And, and they're men with those little beanies on, and they're, they're part of a life-saving club. This was a rescue club at one point. And they're all rowing together in a rowboat through the surf 
from the shore out to the place where there's maybe a capsized boat or a vessel that's in trouble. They're rowing out through the surf, through these huge waves, to go and save people in the middle of storms. Now, this private members club used to be a rescue society. This place that was once a rescue society where they risked life and limb, rowing into storms to save people, had now turned to a members club that had a dress code and a security check-in desk. Now, here's the thing about being a preacher. I'm never not preparing a sermon. Now, I wrote most of this on my vacation. Just don't tell Allison. Because as soon as I was standing there, I'm walking down the corridor and all these photos, and everywhere in the restaurant you go, there were pictures of the lifesavers and there were pictures of those who had been saved. And they were all very old pictures. And then there was a bar and a casino and a private members club. Everybody looked pretty comfortable and not in need of saving. One of the great fears I have now that we're five years in as a church is that we would get comfortable having been rescued and that we as a church would forget about the radical nature of God's saving grace and that we'd get comfortable here and that we would forget our origins. And I'm not talking about our family of origin. I'm not talking about where you grew up or who you grew up with. And I'm not talking about the origins of this local church on the corner of 43rd and Prince Edward in South Vancouver. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the radical nature of the origins of our church 2,000 years ago. My fear, and I know fear is not something that's good, but my fear, my worry, the thing I take to the Lord and say, I'm worried about this. Lord, would you please take this? Would you please give us wisdom to lead so that we don't end up like this? Would you please help us, God? My concern would be that we get so comfortable in the nature of being rescued that we forget that we're called to rescue. I don't want to be the kind of people who we look back years from now and we've got beautiful historical pictures all along the corridors of all the wonderful things that God did in our midst when we were still active. private member's benefits of being part of Jesus' church are substantial. The private member benefits of being part of Jesus' church are outrageously good. They actually go on into eternity. This is a good thing. But we can never forget the origins of the church and the mission that we're invited into, that we're called to live into. And we have enough churches, church buildings around this city that are sort of empty and they've kind of turned into museums and there's pictures along the hallways of the things that they used to do. We have enough of those in Canada. My fear is that we would become that. So there's a point after Jesus' resurrection where He's talking to his disciples, and as you already heard the text read from John chapter 20, verse 21, he, he's talking to his disciples. This is after his resurrection. He's teaching his disciples. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, sent me, even so I'm sending you. What does that mean? There's two parts to this. There's the part where Christ is sent by the Father, and then there's the part where Christ sends us. What that means, if you look at the first part of it, is that our God is a missionary God. 
He came on a mission to rescue. He came on a mission to save. He came on a mission seeking us who were lost. He left his eternal comfort and he incarnated. He became man. He set aside all of his divine comforts. He did not set aside his divinity. He set aside his divine comforts and he was born as a helpless baby boy. Father sent the Son who lived a life empowered by the Spirit to accomplish our rescue, our redemption. He counted not equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, having taken the form of a servant, says in Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself to the point of death. It says even death on a cross. And then it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, for that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every knee would bow. And every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Christ set aside his divine comfort and entered into the storm of our life on a mission to rescue and redeem and to save. Father sent the Son. This was promised about 500 or 600 years before Christ was born. Uh, God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel wrote this down so that we could be edified, so that we could be strengthened, so that we could understand who God is. God revealed himself to us in his word, and he said, this is what I'm going to do one day. That's what it says in Ezekiel 34, verses 11 and 12, and then in verses 15 to 16, it says, for thus says the Lord God, behold I, God says me, here I am, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. Verse 15 says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost And I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy, I will feed them in justice. Verse 12. I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered. Every place where the flock of Jesus has been scattered. The promise from the prophet 550 or 570 years before Jesus was born was that there was one who would come as a shepherd and he would be seeking to rescue those who had been scattered abroad. That's what Jesus said in Luke 19. Jesus said, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the purpose statement of Jesus. I came to seek and save the lost. See, I want want you to notice that it is in the very character of God to seek. The promise was that Christ would come and do this. Christ came and did this. But you can see this all the way back from Genesis chapter 3 onward. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, fall into sin in the Garden of Eden. They rebel against God. They disobey his commands. And then what do they do? They go and they hide. They cover themselves up in shame. And they're saying... we. We feared you. What does the father say? God comes to them and he says, where are you? 
knowing full well where they were, what are you doing? Well, we hid ourselves because we're ashamed. They ran and hid, and God came to seek them. He is a pursuer of his people. It is in his very nature and character to pursue us. And it seems like when we sit around as a body of believers, and and, and most of us here are followers of Jesus, I know that some of you are trying to figure out who Jesus is, and you've got friends who are trying to walk you through that, and you come and you gather, and you're worshiping with us, and you're trying to figure it out, what, what, what is the reality of life look like and what is this Christian story all about and who is this Jesus Christ and why do I need to know him? And so we we talk about that. We look at that. But when we sit around as a group of believers, we'll tell stories of when I came to Christ. And I'll say, so when I came to Christ in the summer of 2001, and we tell the story that way as though I came to Christ. And that's true. There's truth in that statement. But don't forget that before I came to Christ, he came to me. It is in his nature and character to seek us. He doesn't let us go. He has pursued you. And that's how you got to the point you're at now. We were once dead in sin and trespasses. And he sought us out and made us alive in Christ. We were once lost and now we are found. We were once blind and now we see. Yes, we've come to Jesus, but before that, he came to us. We serve a missionary God who came to us so that we could come to him. That's the first part of as the Father sent me, and then Jesus says, and so I send you. And so we we see this, that the Father sends Jesus, and he lives a spirit-empowered life, sinless, blameless, teaches and preaches the kingdom of God, is tried, falsely condemned, and convicted He's crucified, and he dies in our place. He dies, and they take him down from the cross, and they put him in a borrowed tomb. They didn't know where else to put him. Nobody was expecting that Jesus the Messiah was going to be put to death in this way. And when they go to see him on the third day, he's not there anymore. He's risen. Jesus is risen and he reveals himself to his disciples, which must have been a trip like nothing else. He reveals himself to many people. The scripture says even 500 people at one time saw him after his resurrection. In the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. So Jesus is going around and he's teaching. And he comes to his disciples in the midst of that season and he says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. He says, I am the missionary God who set aside my divine comfort and entered into human history and was born as a man who grew up and lived a perfectly obedient life in your place and for your sins. I was condemned and convicted and I was executed on a Roman cross. And I was buried in a tomb, and on the third day I rose from the dead, setting in motion something that could never be stopped, that will transform the entire cosmos one day. As the Father sent me, Jesus said, so I send you. He says, now wait in Jerusalem. 
Because the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you in a different kind of way, as promised in the Old Testament. Let me show you when he walks them through the scriptures. And then he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. You will go and you, as sent ones, will take the message of the kingdom to the rest of the world. And this is the thing about being recipients of that 2,000 years later. We live on the west coast of North America, which if you lived in the ancient Near East, is the ends of the earth. For all the flat earthers out there, right? We're not far from the edge. This is the ends of the earth. We are recipients The gospel of grace, empowered by the Holy Spirit, commissioned with the disciples in Acts chapter 1 and in John chapter 20. As the Father sent me, Jesus, our missionary God, says, so I send you. And he he did not mean those of us in vocational ministry. And he did not mean those of us who have raised funds to go overseas as missionaries. It's a commissioning to every single one of us. He, he does not call any of us that he does not commission. And don't forget, because it's easy to forget, right? We, we showed up here today, you either took a bus or you walked and you had an umbrella or you had good rain gear. And you showed up in relative comfort and safety. You walked in and there was wonderful coffee brewed for your enjoyment. If you have children, you took them downstairs to our amazing team of volunteers who will care for them and instruct them in the way of Jesus. You came up here, you're reasonably comfortable, climate-controlled room, layers of clothing, never felt more comfortable, right? (laughs) Don't forget how many people died to bring the message of the gospel to the west coast of North America. Starting with Jesus. But don't forget how many people shed their blood so that we can have the scriptures in our phone. Like, don't forget the story of the mission of God's people over the last 2,000 years. The mission of Jesus carried on and continued 2,000 years to the west coast of North America, and here we are in comfort, and we can forget it. See, we are stewards of the gospel for our generation. What are we going to do with this? See, Jesus' church doesn't have a mission. Jesus' people, his church, they don't have a mission. Jesus' mission has a church. We need to think about that differently. We are not some sort of dead-end cul-de-sac institution where we just kind of stop and go, oh, we are the church, awesome. I show up and I am a passive consumer. No, no, you are an active participant in the mission of God as God's people. If we understand who we are as the church, we understand that the fundamental identity of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, once he has called you to himself, is to live that out as the sent identity of the church. We have been called to God by grace through faith in Christ, And then we have been sent by God to make the fame and deeds of God known in our day. Every single one of you who have been called to God have also been commissioned to go, have also been commissioned to share, have also been commissioned for that gospel ministry in our lives, in our spheres of influence, with the people that we walk with, the people who we know, in the city that we live in, in the neighborhood, in the street that we live on, in the building that we live in, in the office that we work in, in the family that God had us born into. We are people who are carriers and stewards of the gospel message. 
We don't exist for ourselves. We exist to be a people who worship and glorify God. And, and I think if we worship God rightly, it, what it does is it transforms us and it reorients our lives around what he thinks is important. And sometimes some of the other issues just fall away. And the centrality of the gospel changes us. And we're beautifully compelled by the love of God to share the good news that we've been recipients of. Now, in light of the radical nature of the rescue of Jesus, what are we supposed to do? You're sitting there going like, okay, I'm in. What's next? Well, let's start with what Jesus thought was important. Let's start with Matthew 22. He's got some religious leaders who come and ask him questions. They come to him and they say, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All right. This seems simple enough, right? Love God, love people. In the bag, right? Yeah, if you're not a follower of Jesus in the room, the reason it's so quiet is because it's not simple. <laughs> love God, love people. This is not that complicated. Even Jesus is distilling down the nature of the law which in the first five books of the Bible, there are 613 explicit commands. Jesus is distilling that down, going like, eh, love God, love people. You go, thank you, Jesus. It's very helpful. It's simple, but it's not easy. Your primary call in life is twofold. Your primary call in life is to love God and love people. primary call of Christ City Church is to know and love God and to know and love people. Your primary vocation as a follower of Jesus, your primary purpose is, is not what you're going to do for work tomorrow morning or whenever you get a job. That's, that's, that's not your primary vocation. Your primary vocation as a follower of Jesus is to know and love God and know and love people. The great commandment of knowing God and knowing people, it's, it's sort of like the Narnian wardrobe. That's how I feel about it. The Narnian wardrobe is here. You open the doors and you walk inside and you go, no God, no people. I can get into that box. No problem. Comfortably inside. But what happens is when you get inside, you trip and you stumble through all the coats at the back of the wardrobe and you stumble into a new world. And you recognize that the simplicity of loving God and loving people is actually a vast open world that opens up to you and you have eyes to see differently. And all of a sudden, everything you do in your life takes on a new meaning. Every opportunity you have in life, you have in the back of your mind this beautiful kingdom that we've been called into. And you've stepped into the Narnian world, so to speak, of loving God and loving people, where everything in your life gets reoriented around the centrality of the gospel message that Jesus came to seek and save and has commissioned us to seek and save. So know God, love God, know others and love others. You can't love someone very well that you don't know. You can love them philosophically, which is way easier than loving someone personally. So how do we love God? Well, obey his commands. 
That's what Jesus said, John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay, well, which commandments, Jesus? Well, I don't know. Let's start with loving God and loving people. Oh, now we're in a circle. <laughs> How do I serve you? Obey my commands. What are your commands? To love God and love people? Cool. How do I love you? Obey my commands. Great. Which commands? Well, the ones to love me and love people. Okay. You see where this is going. Well, how do we love God? Well, we obey him. It's good. We glorify him, worship him, seek to obey him. How do we love people? Well, we've got 59 one another's in the New Testament. That's a great place to start. Uh, if, you, if you have access to the Google, you go 59 one another's of the New Testament. Somebody guaranteed has printed you a list of that. And you go, oh, okay. Love one another, challenge one another, confess your sin to one another, love one another, love one another, love one another. It's kind of a big theme. Serve one another, prefer one another. It's a good place to start. Obey God, sure, obey his commands. That's great. Love one another. So many one another's that we can work with. What else? That, that works really well for this community, right? In your community group, you love and serve one another. You do the one another's. Right? Confessing your sin to one another is one of the most beautiful things that you can do in opening yourself up to live a life where you are known by others and you then in turn can be known. Here's why it's one of the most beautiful things. Because none of us is sinless. And here's the problem. If you're sitting there and you've got the perfect veneer on, like I got it all together, and the person sitting beside you is just a disheveled mess, and they're like, oh, I can't be more like him. Like, no, no, no. Confess your sin because you're the same. One of you cleaned up better that day. Seriously. Just a basic admission that you need Jesus in your life will encourage the person who's struggling and saying, all I need is Jesus. This is how we care for one another. How about the people who aren't in this room yet? How about the people here who don't yet know Jesus? Well, Matthew 28 seems like it would help verses 18 to 20 say, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. All that I've commanded you. Love God, love people. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I'm actually not going to abandon you. You're not on your own in trying to accomplish this. I will be with you the whole time. But, but if you think about this just simply, part of our call is to know and love God and obey him. That's obedience to his commands. If you love me, obey my commandments. That's what Jesus said. That's good. One of his commandments is the Great Commission. And if you think about it, you really can't love somebody and not share the gospel with them. You can't love someone and then just withhold the message of eternal hope that you have. Right? And we struggle with that. I struggle with that. There's too many people in my life who don't know Jesus. And that can either be an awkward problem or an opportunity. There's so many times where I think it's an awkward problem. Oh, the, for the courage. You know, it's so easy to preach here. It's so easy. It's so hard to look at my family members in the face and say, can I just tell you about Jesus?
Dr. J.I. Packer, who is a theologian who taught at Regent College here in Vancouver for a number of years, he said, as love to our neighbor suggests and demands that we evangelize, so the command to evangelize is a specific application of the command to love others for Christ's sake and must be fulfilled as such. What he's saying is, is that if you are going to fulfill the great commandment of loving God and loving your neighbor, you're going to need to fulfill the great commission of sharing the gospel with the whole world. For it is obedience to God, and it is the most loving thing you can do. These two have an interplay and a change. When you're sharing the gospel with someone, you're obeying God and you're loving them. When you are obeying God and loving them, you are going to be open to the opportunity to share the gospel with them. Do you see this? They, they have an intertwining. So you can't run around and go, we just love God and love people. Well, not if you don't share the gospel with them. I don't want us to get comfortable and complacent and forget the origin of our radical rescue. Let, let me flip it to the other side of this conversation. This is a notable atheist named Penn Gillette, part of the magic duo what he said. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. That means to seek to convert. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that is not really worth telling them, and you think that it is not really worth telling them this because it could make it socially awkward, and then he says, an atheist who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me along and keep your religion to yourself. How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. He's right. Christ City, I believe in hell. But I believe in the gospel of Jesus. And I believe that God has made a way to rescue disastrous sinners like me from a life of everlasting separation from God. And I believe in hell. And I love this city. But I don't love it the way God does. He loves the city of Vancouver more than we could ever comprehend. And I just believe that we've been given the keys to the door of everlasting life. The doorway is Jesus. Jesus in John 10 said, I am the door. Any who enter through me will have everlasting life. If anyone enters by my name, he says, he will be saved. John 14 talks about this and says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I believe in hell. And I believe in salvation in the exclusivity of Christ. I believe that there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved, Acts chapter 4. I believe that there is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus.
Man, am I ever thankful that when I was 19, there was a young woman who told me about Jesus. I'm so thankful she told me that there was a way. I'm so thankful that she looked beyond the awkwardness of the potential rejection in our conversation and in our relationship, and she threw me a life preserver in the midst of the storm of my own lostness. I'm so thankful she knew she was called to rescue. But listen to me, please. You can't share what you don't know. And you won't share what you don't love. We need to ground ourselves in the truth of the gospel. And we need to work it into our hearts in a way where it becomes our highest love. Where God is the treasure above all treasures. And it it just sort of, over time, it starts to bleed out of your life. And listen, I know that's a hard word. This is why in October, November, Dave and I were talking about it this week. We're going to do a class called How to Share the Gospel. Very simple, practical stuff. Just sit down and talk about it. How do you do this? Because it's easy to preach from here. To be honest, I need a refresher. I want to live this. I want, when people meet me, I don't want them to know that I'm excited about this or that. I I want them to know that I serve the King of Kings, that I've been rescued, that there's room for them on the boat, (laughs) that I have a a purpose, but God is the one who has a plan. (laughs) See, we're not passive consumers of Christianity. We're active participants in it. We're not dress code adherents to a private member club. We are the church. We are the men and women who row into the storm because we have the good news of rescue. And we go to see if there's anybody there we can save. We do zero saving. What we do is connect people to the reconciling work of Christ so they can enter into relationship with God. The goal of the mission And don't forget this. This is the why. See, the goal of the mission is not the mission. The goal of the mission is that we have a relationship with God Almighty. See, think of it like this. We we have the message of reconciliation with the world around us. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5. We are ambassadors of reconciliation. God making his appeal through us. It says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's beautiful. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That is amazing. That is glorious. But that is not the end goal. See, if Allison and I have a fight and we reconcile, that's great. The goal is not to say we have reconciled. The goal is the relationship that comes after. See, the goal of the mission is God himself. It is introducing people to him so that they walk in relationship with him all the days of their life, that they are eternally united with Christ their Savior. It says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. See, the end prize, the end goal is Jesus dwelling with us bodily. It's amazingly incomprehensible. But this is what it says in the next chapter, and I love this text so much. It says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life. This is a picture of heaven, the new Jerusalem. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Verse 4 says they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light, lamp, or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And so the end goal and the greatest part of the mission of God, I think fully understood, is better than a sinless existence. It's better than all the promises of heaven. It's better than all of those things. The promise is Jesus, our treasure. And it's seeing his face. Jesus' presence and Jesus' face. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.